It's October 11th, 2021. This is Rook. She is one of the most renowned Iranian artists of the current era, with multiple international prizes and trophies earned from different countries around the world. Her art remains forever inspired, she says, by her roots in northern Iran, and she has a big fan in Farah Diba. Vanessa Rudbaraki joins us from Paris later in the show. But first, she is a renowned academic philosopher and philanthropist who now has a major role as Senior Vice President of International Affairs for the Anti-Defamation League. Dr. Sharon Nazarian is here for a feature interview. Plus, the Rook team convenes, and we've got your letters of the week. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 150 of Rook, the big 150. Snuck up on us. Yes, nice to be talking to you. Hope you're keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz. Durud, Barashoma. Happy Thanksgiving if you're in Canada or Canadian. Uh, happy Columbus, uh, do we say Happy Columbus Day? Is I'm not, it Happy Columbus Day yeah. or it's just Columbus Day? I don't, I don't know what the position on Columbus is. There's now. only one American in this room right now. We should ask. Keon, what do we say? Do we say Happy Columbus Day? I don't know. None of us are qualified <laughs> to know whether we're supposed to be happy or not. It's, it's Columbus Day. It's so Columbus yeah, Day in the U.S. You say Happy. Well, how about uh, Hello, Americans? It's Columbus Day. Be happy. Let's do it that way. Um, doctor, speaking of uh, Americans, uh, an Iranian American, Doctor Sharon Nazarian. Grew up in Tehran, came to California after the revolution. Uh, now the VP of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, monitoring and combating racial hatred and incidents of uh, anti-Semitism around the world. Cannot be an easy gig, let's face it. Uh, she's also a mother of three and a popular uh, public speaker. She will join us from Los Angeles in a few minutes. In about an hour, Vanessa Rudbaraki joins us from Paris, a very successful Iranian artist who... Uh, uses nature and her mathematics background in her works. Shia, mm, she's got a big fan, as I mentioned uh, in the intro bills there, in Farah Diba, who, uh, and her work is really quite spectacular, Vanessa's work. I'm very much looking forward to speaking to her. Hello, the fabulous Keon. Hi, Gian. Hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, Groovy Shia. Hi, nice to see you guys. We launched the Contemporary History of Iran, our new series uh, this past Thursday. Uh, it was part one of the series, From Shahyad to Azadi. Um, and uh, so it's just me talking to a smart person <laughs> as, opposed <laughs> as opposed to the you three. No, I didn't mean it that way, but uh, I miss Jesus you guys Christ when we do that show. Thanks. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Happy Columbus Day. So much love in this room on a national holiday. <laughs> I, I uh, listen. The love should be for the turkeys who how get a raw deal yeah. on this day. Um, so our first uh, episode there was uh, from Shahiyat Azadi, which uh, uh, was about the morphing. Uh, is about the morphing of the um, Shahiyad Tower, the Maidona Shahiyad, into the Maidona Azadi after the revolution, and how a, a symbol, a monument of one era can become a symbol of another yeah. uh, virtually overnight. And that episode is doing really well. I'm really yeah. happy to see that. We, we'd love you to spread the word. If you haven't checked it out already, the Contemporary History of Iran, it's on our Rook platforms. This Thursday, uh, The Americans and the 53 Coup is the mm. title of this Thursday's episode. Now, I know we mentioned this last week, but I've been getting a bunch of comments on this. The music for the yeah. contemporary history yes. of Iran, written by our very own David Foster, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, our very That's own uh, Quincy Jones. Uh, Shia has uh, taken the, the the Rook theme and uh, done a variation of it for the contemporary history of Iran, and it's so good it's playing in my head all oh. the time. Oh. You know, yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, uh, Shia, you want to yes. play us a bit of that, will you? Sure. This Avec is, okay. See, this is the intro part, and here it goes. It's got this, like, uh, it's like a mystery series, John. <laughs> mystery, mystery. Big payoff. Love that. Mm. Isn't that so good? good? So, so good. Game so of Thrones esque. Totally like Game of Thrones. It's like some new HBO series. Yeah. <laughs> Who's doing the strings? Shia hired at least what is it? Was it about 35 musicians to do all that. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I think it's all Shia, right? You play yes. all the parts. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could record it with a. Uh, actual player but it's just um, VSTs and plugins. Yeah. yeah really nicely done yeah, anyway the contemporary history of Iran Thursdays uh, our regular Rook shows on Mondays like this one I saw a um, a new morning consult study that's a pollster that came out this weekend uh, and I thought this was really interesting um, do you know when surveyed how many Americans could find Iran on a map? Like what percentage of Americans could find Iran? A, a country that obviously has been in the news, mm -hmm. is constantly in the news in the United States, you know, has the, there was the saber rattling with Trump, Donald Trump. There's the, well, are we going to do a new Iran deal? I mean, this is, it's not a country that it doesn't get spoken about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what percentage of Americans do you think could find Iran on a map? And this is like, it could even get in the general vicinity of Iran when pointing on a map. I'm going to go based on my own personal experience since my cousins are Americans and they can barely locate their own state on the map. I'm going to say 15%. 15? Yeah. Wow. It's very low. That's very low. It's going to be a very depressing answer. Uh, it's 28%. Oh, okay. Better than I oh, expected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. like we think that's great. Yeah. Almost a third of Americans. Patience. Yeah. For some reason, do you Geography is not like no, an American strong thing. suit. I've seen videos of uh, people trying to ask them, like, where's Argentina? And they 
point to Asia. Now let me. Well, it's, it tends to be insular. The the education system in your country of uh, the, <laughs> the states, Keon. Now, now, how many Iranians do you think could point point out the United States on I'd the map? I'd say oh. probably ninety nine percent. Right. Yeah. yeah. Even the ones in the villages, you think, Shia? Oh, yes. Yeah. Probably. Omrico, yeah. it, it is here. Yeah. <laughs> that is where we. Yeah. This is the end, right? That's where we go. Eighty five percent. You think 85? Well, no, I didn't have, I don't have those Oh, you stats. don't have the no, number? Okay. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> Dude, it was a fun game, numbers. Gian. You have to ruin I just everything. have the one <laughs> statistic. You were right. Uh, well, I mean, what did you say? 99%? I said 90%, uh, probably 90%. If you are listening and you're in Iran and you cannot locate uh, America on a map, please tell us <laughs> so we know which yeah, percentage like you are. <laughs> we're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and Castbox. If you'd like to see some visuals, switch over to YouTube. Uh, and if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Farsi, check us out on Telegram. How many Canadians do you think could could uh, identify Iran? More than Americans. I think sure. so too. Yeah. I think so too. And it's not to say that Americans are, or Canadians are better, mm-hmm. although. No, we are. It's, no, no, it's <laughs> not, it's not, it's not to say that. It's just that Canadians, we uh, in general, because we're a smaller country, and not in size, of course, mm-hmm. but in, in population and yeah. in strength and all of that, um, we just tend to have more of a global sense. Mm-hmm. We, I think Canadians yeah. generally know more about the world as a product of having to know more about right. the world than Americans. I, I, it's the public education system. Like my relatives in the U.S. have told me this. Like you mm-hmm. guys have a better public education system. It's it's a fact, and I think that's that's, that's part of it. Keonnotomy at gmail dot com <laughs> is where you write if you're American uh, it's taking umbrage. No, really uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, Listen, I I, I'm American and Canadian. You can so say I that. Can that's say right. That, yeah. No, I, I mean I think it's true though. I mean I I, I still think twenty eight percent is a depressing number. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, when we hear surveys about, uh, you know, 40% of Americans believe that the aliens are real or whatever those things are, that that it's maybe um, you put that into context. Uh, Hey, big thanks to Fadid Ameryun and York National Realty for helping to bring this episode of Rook to your ears and eyes. York National Realty, a boutique real estate company based in Aurora, Ontario, Canada. Can you point that out on a map, Keon? I probably cannot, actually. <laughs> How many Keons can point out an Aurora? Uh, listen, York National Realty provides top-tier service with its team of Farid, Sean Fadavi, and Nahal Sultani. They're a full-service realty firm that are there for everyone from first-time home buyers to investors looking for new opportunities and the communities they serve. Farid and his team have made it their mission to give back to the Iranian community in the diaspora and supported a number of Persian community events and projects. If you are looking for real estate, this boutique firm is where you should go. They provide uh, personal service with flair and great attention. Try them out for all your real estate needs. Thank you to Farid, Sean, and Nahal. York National Realty. Go to yorknational.com, yorknational.com. Now, have you you ever noticed that... um, Iranians, uh, they don't, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but they, they can't just give you a compliment. There always has to be some critical assessment that, that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Like, like, but there's a uh, Persian's compliment, yeah. and then, and then, then there's like an attack, yeah. you know? So it's like, Gian, ma, oh, Sheikh Shuma asked him, 
Yeah, can be topoli should you know? Like it's it's like that, right? Like you know, it's like a compliment sandwich between two. That's right. We're your fan, but I have you gotten fat? Yeah. So uh, Persians compliment and then attack. So yesterday, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, you know, I went to this uh, lunch at this restaurant. I was invited uh, to the, you know, this the Guilane. It's a restaurant yeah, we have yeah, in yeah. Toronto. It's a very nice mm-hmm. uh, Persian restaurant. So a man comes up and uh, you know like. Only Persians, like on a Thanksgiving Sunday, would dress up in a suit jacket to go to <laughs> get some kebab. But yeah. you know, and he's got the jacket, and you know, I don't know, older guy maybe. And he says, uh, "This is absolutely true story." Jean John, your your program is very good. The rock, excellent, mashallah. But Bebin, <laughs> but Bebin, you need the facts. And I was oh, like, uh, uh, okay. Uh, and then he said, your friends, yeah, I think he means you guys. <laughs> he said, your friends do not have the facts. And I was like, uh, is this about something in particular? And I'm, I'm asking him, and he just keeps going, no, 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 no. but uh, it's good, but your friends do not have the facts. You need the facts. He just doesn't like us, I think. He just he couldn't say, idiots. he couldn't stop it. Your program is nice. I enjoy it, you know. You need the facts. You need the facts. So, Jean, does that mean that you're not, you don't fact check anything? I don't know what it means. I couldn't, I, I guess. You mean, he, you mean saying hello needs to be fact checked? I think you meant like we, you know, when we're talking about Iran, we don't, we're, you know, because we speak anecdotally, it's right? Yeah, 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 we give opinions. Yeah. And we don't, you know, we're not listing off <laughs> statistics the, the or something. Is, I don't know. This is yeah. famous with Iranians. If someone goes, against their opinion they don't like you yeah, you don't have the facts they will, yeah, yeah. Exactly. they don't like I don't know this is my experience like you can't uh, have a polite debate with yeah, a lot of Iranians yeah, yeah, yeah. and if yeah. that guy was wearing a tie as well then he, wasn't wearing he a tie. only believes in he was, one fact no, no he wasn't wearing a tie but he was okay. wearing a jacket okay, you know okay. and he was uh, your program is very Wait. good excellent but baby you need the f- your friends do not have the facts <laughs> And I was like, no, they're not my friends. They're just people. I, I don't know them. They're, they're, I, my friends would have the facts, I swear. Uh, all right, so we have some uh, letters. Yeah, it's on our inaugural episode of Contemporary History of Iran. All right, we will get yeah. to the letters. And we've got Vanessa Rudbaraki coming up. But let's get to our first feature guest. Uh, my first guest today is an Iranian-American social activist, academic, and philanthropist. Dr. Sharon Nazarian is the president of the YNS Nazarian Family Foundation and the founder of the Unison Soraya Nazarian Center for Israel Studies at UCLA. She also teaches as an adjunct professor at UCLA in the Department of Political Science and has focused on education and public policy in her journey towards seeing the world through a philanthropic perspective. Sharon was born in Tehran, where she spent the first 10 years of her life before fleeing with her family in the midst of the Iranian Revolution of 1979. They immigrated to the United States, settling in Beverly Hills, California. That's Sharon and her parents and siblings. She went on to receive her master's and doctorate of philosophy degrees from USC in the field of political science, specializing in political economy and economic development in newly industrialized countries. 
In 2017, the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, appointed Sharon as Senior Vice President of International Affairs. These days, Sharon heads the ADL's work fighting anti-Semitism and racial hatred globally and also oversees the ADL's Israel office, as well as overseeing three kids. And right now, Dr. Sharon Nazarian joins us from Los Angeles, California today. Hello. 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 Very nice to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You know, I want to ask you about your journey, about being a Jewish Iranian American, about the state of the world. But first, I've been thinking about you, and I've been thinking about what it must be like to be overseeing a portfolio that is about combating anti-Semitism and, and hatred and and thinking that's a lot to be dealing with day to day. Do you do you have a a way of not letting the negative news, which is so clearly, obviously universal from day to day, uh, or the reality of the world that is, get you down? Actually, it's such a, a wonderful question to start on because um, I'm asked that question quite often. And first of all, it's such a pleasure to be with you and your listeners today. And given the amazing work um, that you do every day, it's really my honor to be with you. Uh, you know, I wake up every morning um, at 5 a.m. Um, looking at a briefing of all the worst incidents of hate that have taken place around the globe. And um, many ask me, you know, how do you get out of bed every morning? That must be so depressing. It must be so, you know, really um, putting such a dark light on, on the work that you do every day. And I said, actually, in fact, what it does for me, and I guess it depends kind of on your personality type, what it is, it's the engine that actually moves me. And knowing that an organization like ADL exists, that I'm a part of its executive team, that we make decisions that actually have impact, all of that energizes me on a daily basis. And hopefully that's the right mix and makeup to have positions like this. It's, it's not easy. I mean, we'll get into the details of this, but it's got to feel on some level like combat. Like, you know, every day you're, you're going to battle. And, and I mean, for some people, for me, social media can even just feel like that, let, let alone having to get the briefings in, in the morning oh. and actually deal with the things that we can, some of us can choose to ignore sometimes in the news. Some people turn off their Twitter feed for a day or or just choose to, to to not deal with it do you have days where you just say i, I cannot hear about hatred and anti-semitism today unfortunately i don't have that luxury um it it is it is a task um but it's a commitment and i can tell you that every single staff person at edl comes to adl because of its mission we're all mission driven it does take a certain personality type to be doing this work. And uh, hopefully now I'm in my fourth year, I just had my fourth anniversary at ADL. Um, and I think everything that you kind of cited my, in my uh, CV, all of that I do believe has kind of led me to this moment where both in terms of my own career path that brought me to ADL, but in terms of where the world is, um, there couldn't be more important work, in my view, that I could be doing right now, and I feel really privileged. I was going to ask it. you about what you just just described as your evolution. That uh, did it feel like a natural evolution for you to go from teaching public policy to being part of influencing public policy? It really, really did. And and you know the three buckets that you mentioned of my kind of career work, you know, academia, philanthropy, and foreign policy. At some points in my life kind of felt very disjointed, like those were all my passions, but they were did not always intersect in organic ways. 
But once I was tapped for this position at EDL, it all made sense to me. And I use the skill sets, the network, the knowledge that I acquired from all three worlds that I was in before EDL in my work today every single day, whether it's my diplomacy work where I'm engaging with foreign ministers and ambassadors about what's happening in their country, whether it's my um, addressing major global forums on um, rising hate and anti-Semitism. So my academic uh, experience comes into play there, or whether it's just about what it means to build and to create new tools um, and solutions to what we're facing. So my philanthropic work of building um, building new institutions, building programmatic um, offerings, all of that has really helped me in my position today. I'm standing on the shoulders of, of all my um, uh, predecessors who brought ADL to where it is today, but to make sure that we're relevant, to make sure that we have not lost sight of the mission of the organization that was established over 100 years ago, my background really has enabled me to be um, a key executive in this mission. Right and hopefully move our work forward. It's not just your background, of course, as an academic and your background as a philanthropist and your background in foreign policy, but it's also your background as a Jewish kid who was growing up in Iran and and Absolutely. saw a- anti-Semitism uh, up front uh, there. Not that it wasn't happening in other places as well, but um, I, I want to ask you about that. I want I want you to take me back. We'll come back to the state of the world today, but I, I want to ask a bit about your life uh, and, and being a Jewish kid in Iran before the revolution. I also know you're uh, a professor, so you'll forgive me if I ask you to give us a, a history lesson of sorts here. If you can do this mm-hmm. um, with any kind of, uh, I mean, in, in a brief sense, if you can give us an overview. Sure. Jews have been in Iran. I know this for over 2,000 years. It, they, it's not like this suddenly, this is a 20th century thing that there were Jewish Iranians. What can you tell us about the history of Jews in Iran? So, uh, Jews actually um, can document our um, existence in uh, Persian Empire going back to the Babylonian times, so 2,700 years. We're considered one of the oldest Jewish communities existing in existence today in the world. And for those familiar with kind of Jewish cultural identity, Iranian Jews are neither Ashkenazi, which means Jews of European descent, nor Sephardic. Sephardic Jews are of Spanish descent, you know, right. as a result of the Spanish Inquisition. So we are one of those few communities around the world. I thought you had to be one neither. or the other. Yeah. No, I, no, right. you don't actually. So Iranian Jews are unique in that we are considered, I mean, if there is a label to put on Iranian Jews in Hebrew, it's Mizrahi, which means Eastern Jews. So right, right, right. Jews of Eastern descent, because we did not come from Spain, and so we don't have the Spanish heritage. Of course, there are Iranian Jews who are of Spanish descent, but they're those who literally can link their uh, um, heritage back thousands of years to having been in Iran for that long. Um, just to, in a very short form, the history of Jews in Iran has been a very mixed um, one. Um, where there have been periods of huge tolerance, great integration, where Jews have held important posts in uh, previous Iranian governments, have been important advisors to kings through different dynasties. But there's definitely been periods of huge pain, huge oppression, pogroms, killings, discriminatory um, laws that have segregated Jews. And up until the 1920s and 30s, when, for example, my father was born in 1931, 
There were not only um, ghettos called Mahale um, in many of the main uh, Iranian cities like Tehran and Esfahan and Shiraz, but there were also um, actual legislation and rules that segregated Jews from uh, participating in daily life in Iran. Um, anything from holding major positions to attending university to um, participating in any sort of major uh, business transactions, government grants, government um, projects. You know, my father um, went on to become a major infrastructure developer. Um, he did road and highways and, and sewage um, systems. And for many, many years, as he was growing his business, he was not privy to um, many um, government um, projects because he was Jewish. So the reality of his life um, definitely started one with um, systemic anti-Semitism in Iran. And as my generation, my siblings um, kind of um, were born, definitely uh, Iran and the Shah um, moved toward a much more tolerant, protective system of protecting all religious minorities, obviously not just Jews, but Armenians and, and Baha'is and others. Um, and by the time of the revolution and up until the revolution, there was really a sense of a period of real enlightenment and kind of a golden um, uh, era for minorities in Iran where they were able to participate in all forms and all aspects of life in Iran, business, um, government, um, you know, we had a, a representative of the community to the parliament. Um, so the revolution really took away all of that. And um, so, as I said, overall speaking, there were, it was a very mixed history. Um, and I think many Iranians don't know about that. They don't know that um, there was really those periods of great tolerance and also periods of uh, great oppression. So sadly, that is a history. How would you characterize your own time growing up as a kid in Iran in the 1970s? What what comes to mind when somebody says, uh, what was Sharon like at five years old? So I definitely benefited from kind of that final um, period of Shah's rule that there was really a sense of um, protection and tolerance for Jews. I attended a Jewish day school along with my siblings um, right across from the uh, Tehran University. I um, felt that, you know, in terms of my family, we had moved to parts of the city that were not overly um, Jewish. So my parents felt um, safe and comfortable enough to move into neighborhoods that were primarily uh, non-Jewish. Um, and yet they were felt welcome to do that in more prominent neighborhoods. Um, our lives were very comfortable and my father's business um, um, uh, success allowed us to to travel and to have a really high quality uh, lifestyle. Um, but still, I have to tell you that and many minorities will tell you that we felt like a minority every single day. So part of the cultural um, lessons that we got from our parents in very um, subtle ways were taught how to speak in front of um, non-Jews, how to behave in front of non-Jews when we had let's say we went to our neighbor's home um, that were not Jewish, um, what we were able to, to say, what we were able to do, what we were able to eat and not eat. So the behavior, there was some of these kind of code switching, as we call it now in, in today's parlance, that as minorities, and again, I don't think it's just the Jewish minorities of Iran, but many minorities felt that there had to be a certain level of um, safety, care, in how we behaved. Sorry, sorry what, do you, what do you mean uh, how to speak? 
what will you what would you need to say or not say I think I think some of the very obvious again what I'm I'm calling code switching but subtle messaging was um, again most minorities if you've been a minority in a majority society you you will understand this and I think probably perhaps all of us now in the diaspora in the Iranian diaspora today feel that as right, being now yeah. a minority yeah, in, yeah. in the We've got majority practice of being minorities. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, coming from uh, a heritage of um, of anti-Semitism, we were taught um, and we essentially, not overtly, but learned from our parents' um, language, from our parents' behavior, how you behave as a minority community. And so with, whether it's the kind of reverence and respect you gave when you were with non-Muslims, um, if you, the care you took and how you spoke, um, again, very subtle, very symbolic, very not overtly addressed, but more than anything modeled and taught by parents and handed to children from generation to generation. So when we talk about um, kind of generational trauma, if you wanted, to, and I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but right. there's definitely those kind of cues that are handed from one generation to, gen to, to the next, even though, again, as I mentioned, the, the trends towards um, uh, minorities was a positive one up until the um, revolution. It was definitely one of uh, acceptance, more of um, tolerance, um, but despite those trends, there was always kind of a fear of um, stepping out of line, of you know, being called a bad Jew, being called derogatory terms, which were not, you know, they were there in daily life. Those terms were there. Tell me about the um, the exodus of 1979. What what was the the breaking point, if you will? What was the uh, precipitant for your dad, for your family? Your mom was a sculptor. You have these um, siblings. What, what was the moment where the decision was made that you have to get out of Tehran? Um, for us, it was really the beginning of the demonstrations and the um, especially the violent demonstrations. I have very clear memories of being driven to school in the morning by my father. And um, he taught me, he said, Sharon, if you're in the car and you s the car gets attacked, you need to kind of scoot under and cover your head. If you're sitting at school in your classroom and you don't sit by the window because they might be throwing rocks at you. So it, it, this was still in 1978, this is before the Shah left. And I remember my parents having conversations at night um, talking about um, the uncertainty of the future. My father was, um, you know, very close friends with the Israeli ambassador at the time in Tehran. And I remember conversations with him where he would warn us and he actually told us that we don't really know what the future will be um, of this government and how long the Shah will last. There was a lot of talk about uncertainty and, and that's when my father, um, who had a history of, you know, he went to Israel in um, 1948 after the establishment of the state of Israel kind of found himself there as a young adult and came back to Iran when Iran's economy and the oil boom took off. So he always felt that, you know, if in case of insecurity, uh, we had a second home to go to and my grandparents lived in Israel. So that's where my father decided to move the family to Israel first. And after that, recognizing, with the hope of coming back, by the way, we, my father was, you know, most Jews and I think other minorities who left Iran Iran is our home. Iran is our land where we were all born. 
Um, the thought was we're going to come back just like in the 50s, you know, the Shah abdicated and came back. Um, we were not ready to give up on our homeland. But um, after about a year, my father saw that um, staying in Israel was even more complicating in terms of our affairs in Iran. And we moved to Los Angeles then. I was going to say, you know, when I heard the story that um, for a while you guys sort of uh, are in Israel, you're squatting there as your father mm -hmm. thinks we're going to return to Iran. This revolution thing might pass, yes. like 1953, et cetera, whatever. We'll, we'll go back. I thought that was interesting because, I mean, as you say, your dad was born in, in Iran in 1931. I know he's still around. That's fabulous. Yes, and, yes. But that, you know, it wasn't always easy. I mean, when you talk about um, ghettos and pogroms and, and, and uh, discrimination and all of that, and yet the fact that he the first instinct is we're going to return um, suggests he really first and foremost saw himself as an Iranian. Yes, absolutely. No, all Iranian Jews feel that way. If you look at uh, the homes, the diaspora homes of Iranians around the world, Iranian Jewish families around the world, the prevalence of Farsi in second, third generation language, the prevalence of not only our food and music and the cultural um, you know, heritage that we have is so rich and is so deep. All Iranian Jews are Iranian first. And, and, and that's it, that's who we are, that's our identity. And there's no questioning of that. Um, the fact that we have um, a spiritual home in Israel and given that Israel was created um, in many reasons, not only because we've had obviously a, a tie to the, to the land since the beginning of time, but after World War II, it became a refuge for so many Jews who fled and survived um, kind of World War II. Um, it is just, uh, it, it kind of points to the reality of many minorities who feel that um, while of course they're citizens of the homeland, um, as minorities, there's always danger. There's always a feeling, you know, kind of in the bottom of your gut of insecurity that you could be targeted. And so I think, again, not just uh, Jews, but all Iranian minorities. I mean, look at the Baha'i community. They have probably fa faced the most amount of repression um, sure. since the revolution and the targeting and killing of the Baha'i community has just been outrageous and over the last 40 years and the kind of life that they need to have in Iran today. I mean, literally living underground and having underground schools and universities. And I mean, it's just really outrageous, the treatment of that minority community. But again, it's a dynamic of um, living in um, illiberal societies, societies that are non-democratic. And in those societies, minorities are the most vulnerable. And uh, they get blamed first, they get targeted first for whatever insecurities and anxieties uh, societies feel. And uh, Jews were no different throughout our history and including um, as part of the revolution as well. What was coming to America like for you? Um, you know, it had been, it was two rounds of drastic change for me in two years. So uh, when we went to Israel, I did attend school there. So I, I learned Hebrew, I adapted to school life in Israel, and then we had to uh, pick up again and then come to Los Angeles. Once we landed in Beverly Hills, um, the hostage crisis took place. So for all of us, that was such a painful, painful time. Yep. Uh, where on one hand we had fled our homes and left everything behind, and on another hand we were blamed for the American hostages yeah, being yeah, taken. Yeah. So it was painful. I remember as a you know as a ten, eleven year old, really feeling you know what we use today, you know the bullying that happens in schools. So it was it was difficult. It was uh, 
difficult. But for me, because our home life and my parents created so much love and safety in our home, I really just felt so uh, blessed. And I have parents who, for whatever reason, I really can't really explain it. We never had dialogue in the home about everything that was lost. It was never about crying and and um, being depressed about everything that we lost, especially our material um, um, uh, things that we had. So my parents were very forward-looking. And the minute we landed, it was all about reestablishing our life, our home, school for us, and just moving forward. So I think the resilience that I hold today, I think, as an adult, a lot of it owes to is owed to those changes that came early on in my life, like all of us felt, all of the all refugees who have to leave their home and, and find new homes, it creates a certain resilience. And I tell my kids every day, I'm like, I worry about you guys because you just haven't had the kinds of hardship. And I hope that you have the resilience that, you know, what life will, will bring you. Hopefully you will, be, you will not have difficulties, but refugees and immigrants, we, we have our, you know, sturdy bunch. We, we have strength in our ways because we've had to, um, you know, move and, and reestablish ourselves in ways that others who haven't yes, know, don't have those muscles. Absolutely. Although every generation thinks that the uh, generation after them has it easier, right? There's the old right, uh, right. Monty Python sketch where, you know, where it's like, it's in true. my day, we used to get up in the morning, clean the lake, you know, like uh, with our right, tongues, you know. Snow that, and treacherous <laughs> snow, yes. Yeah. No doubt. No, I think I'm just talking about a kind of a refugee or immigrant experience. Uh, absolutely. That is, a, yeah, yeah. that is a unique experience. I have Others my, have uh, hardship, no doubt. I have my father's uh, name tattooed on my arm in, in, in Farsi because mm. be, because I believe that the pioneering role he took in in emig- emigrating, you know, leaving one side of the world to go to the other. By the way, in a period like your parents and you where you couldn't get on Facebook and, and chat with your friends as soon as you land, right. you know, back home, <laughs> right. you're, you're right. in a new place and you can only make a phone call maybe once a month or, or write a letter or something like that. Um, the, I, I just w- will never, you know, me and 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 certainly future generations would never never even be able to understand how to experience that because it's it was these were pioneers our parents you know um Absolutely. you you do something interesting which is you go i mean most um middle class kids or, or or kids with some resources or upper class kids they especially iranians as you know um go into our our Stream, streamed into uh, um, medicine or engineering or something like that if they're going to go into academia. Um, and that goes for, for boys and girls, but especially for, for a woman to go into political science and, um, and, and be into foreign policy. Uh, wh- where did that happen for you? Probably from my home and uh, from the reality of our lives. I was very much immersed in our family life where politics and awareness and and we feel a difference now you know you're in canada i'm in the u.s these large countries are kind of inward looking and and but what we do notice that when you come from smaller countries when you are not that iran is small but um countries that are more connected or more dependent on uh, regional and international um activities there is more sense of um, uh, the need for awareness um, and, and knowing what's going on in the world. So my home was like that with my father. Um, our home was very open to businessmen from around the world. My father was in the business that, you know, he did a lot of work with European companies, as I said, with Israeli companies. So our home was a very international home where 
Uh, my father spoke many languages. We had uh, people come in and go through our, our house as they were visiting Tehran. And um, as a child, I think I was very interested in the world around me. And, and I think politics coming to America, the Iranian revolution, you know, left its print on me. I remember having dreams about, you know, interviewing uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and saying, you know, what is your plan here? You know, what are you trying to do to this country? And so as a child, and, and, and I did my undergrad in, in journalism and international relations, thinking that I'm going to be a foreign correspondent. And as I and I learned and studied more, you know, political science really became my passion of answering the questions that I had as a child, kind of answering the whys um, and trying to really kind of put my arms around some of the theoretical basis for the makeup of our societies um, and, and where is the world headed. So, um, and, and, you know, I, I just love learning as well. I have to say, I, I was not keen to leave the, the university once I got my undergraduate degree. It was such a period of kind of flourishing for me and, and, and blossoming and, and going all the way to get my PhD without really a plan. I didn't know if I wanted to be an academic and teach full time. It was really about the, the discovery that was uh, very important to me and very, I was very committed to. And once um, I finished my PhD, really teaching became one of the first avenues for me to impart some of my knowledge. And I really loved that. I started at USC and then I switched over to UCLA, where, as you mentioned, I, I established a center. Um, you know, teaching is, is, I think, is the ultimate form of service. And, and I really believe in it. And uh, up until ADL, that's kind of where, where I felt like my commitment was. So tell me about that, the, the ADL, because... Um uh, you, you do do some interesting things. You're teaching, you're involved, you've got these foundations, you're involved in philanthropy. You produce a movie called uh, Baba June. Uh, you've done a couple mm -hmm. movies, but that one uh, that we've talked about actually on the show with Navid Negahman. Um, oh, God. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, ve it's a very interesting mm -hmm. film, actually. Uh, and, and so in 2017, when the ADL comes to you, the Anti-Defamation -Def League comes to you and says, we want you to become an executive, was it obvious to you that you would say yes, or did you? Oh, not at all not at all actually the way the way uh this pivot to adl happened was really out of left field for me i had not been involved in any work relating to anti-semitism that's not my area of expertise that's not even where our foundation our family foundation was focused on um our ceo jonathan greenblatt um uh, and his wife marjan greenblatt who is also iranian american uh, we knew of each other socially a bit. We had served on some boards together. Jonathan um, had served in the Obama White House. He was the first kind of director of the Office of Innovation for the Obama White House. So I had met him when I went as a delegation of Iranian American leaders to the White House where President Obama had invited us. So I met Jonathan then before he came on to kind of lead the ADL. So when we, for the first time, talked about um, ADL was more as a kind of a social setting. And he was telling me about kind of what he, his vision for ADL was. And he mentioned that one of his few executive spots that were still open on his executive team was the senior vice president for international. And he was asking my husband and I about kind of whether we had any um, thoughts on who would be a good candidate. But what happened was literally two weeks after that one, that get together, Charlottesville happened. For those of you, you know, oh, your yeah. listeners, I'm sure you all remember that horrific march by kind of alt-right, um, mostly men, but also women who 
you know, spewed really hateful, hateful. What was that chant um, about uh, Jews will? Jews, yeah, Jews will not replace will us. Will not replace Jews, us. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So s sitting in front of the TV that day, um, watching that with my husband, and my husband is an immigrant as well. He's from Argentina. Both of us sitting with our mouths open, just not believing what we were seeing. How could this be possible? You know, and right near our nation's capital. And, you know, ADL's history was one where, you know, the KKK was such a point of um, uh, focus for the ADL. ADL was instrumental, for example, passing legislation that made um, hood wearing, like mask and hood wearing of the KKK illegal. Mm. So we've been very instrumental in kind of addressing uh, the white supremacist movements in America throughout its history. But to see these men not even covering their face, not even feeling the need to, you know, like there was no shame yeah, in what they yeah, were saying, yeah. you know, holding those tiki torches. Yeah. And all of us, again, those of us who had to flee our countries, our homeland and come to this country for refuge and, and to feel safe to sit there and to say, who are these people and what are they saying? And how does it, it affected me in such a deep way? And I said to my husband, you know, my husband said, Sharon, what more important work have you been doing than fighting that? You know, and I thought about my father as you did. I said, my father brought us here to make sure that we're safe mm -hmm. and that we won't be targeted again. And here it is, this threat right in front of me on my TV station. Um, and that was a turning point in my life. That's when uh, Jonathan reached out to me again, says, Sharon, you know, I think you'd be great for this post. And I said, are you sure? I mean, this is really not my area of experience. Like, no, no, it's your background. It's who you are as an Iranian, as an Iranian-American woman as someone who understands what it means to be um, in a minority community, because that's what this job entails, you know, looking around the world and looking at vulnerable communities, you know what that looks like, you know what it feels like. And it was such a culmination of like, as I said before, everything in my past coming together and preparing me for that moment of accepting this important role. And, um, you know, the rest is history. I just, that, that was definitely a turning point for me, though. I think many of us felt that way. Sharon, let me ask you about the, um, the work you do now and the state of the world from your perspective. And, um, and, and let's start with anti-Semitism. I mean, the current, I guess the current analysis by most informed people uh, would be to say that there's, there's been a rise in nationalism around the world. There's been a rise in xenophobia and white supremacy in recent years. You mentioned Charlottesville. And that has led to an increase in anti-Semitism around the world. Is that, do you agree? Is that the... Absolutely, absolutely. Our data, our data shows that, you know, um, ADL has been keeping probably the most uh, um, reliable data on anti-Semitic incidents. So actual acts of what we call um, uh, uh, anti-Semitic incidents. That could be anything from, you know, um, going and, you know, scrolling things on the walls of synagogues, whether it's a swastika, it's about, it could be anything, you know, then from there going up into more acts of intimidation and acts of violence. All of those we capture on, on an annual audit every year. And we are, along with the FBI, um, FBI does more of a, broad hate crime statistics. So all forms of uh, crime that are considered hate crimes, our statistics is more specifically to uh, measuring anti-Semitic acts. And then we have a whole other um, um, index now, a tool for measuring online hate as well. Um, so the trends that uh, we are now um, measuring uh, really definitely point to unprecedented rise um, both in physical anti-Semitic um, incidents as well as online, um, a rise in online hate. 
again, both anti-Semitic, but broadly speaking, um, uh, especially online, is uh, uh, broad online use of hate language, hate my, um, so, intimidation, and so on. I mean, it, it, obviously, it begs the question, why? You know, we had um, recently Dr. Fateli Mogadam on, um, who's mm-hmm. the psychologist and, and writer who's written extensively about dictatorships and uh, authoritarianism, and he was saying, sadly, his analysis is that the, the world is sliding backwards into uh, authoritarianism in, in in various parts of the world, including the West, in in, in his opinion, um, I, I would I would imagine that that's not unconnected, disconnected from um, from a rise in in, in hate and, and anti semitism. But what what is your sense of why this is happening? I mean, the way we see it at ADL, first of all, is that anti semitism is a canary in the coal mine. So when we talk about any society, especially liberal democratic societies, when um, anti-Semitic incidents go up, it is more a telling indicator for um, the backsliding of democratic societies away from uh, freedom, protection, tolerance, and democratic values. So um, it's very important for all of us to understand that the reason, you know, the focus on anti-Semitism has become so important it's not just for the sake of the Jews, but it's more telling indicator for this, the health of any society. Right, and right. because we have, you know, over you know, 2000 years of experience, unfortunately, and sadly, um, it is a very telling indicator. So that's number one. Number two, you pointed to a lot of the factors that we think are also very, very important. Um, for example, mass movement of people. When you have mass migration, whether it's due to wars, as we saw, for example, with Syria and Iraq and and um, now with Afghanistan, mass movement of people leads to xenophobia. Societies um, where they see the other coming in right. um, leads to anxieties and insecurities. So that's for sure a huge factor. And we've seen really an upsurge in movement of people, whether it's for political, economic, war reasons or whatever. Secondarily, kind of this um, rise in populism. And again, you you referenced that um, both on the extreme right, um, on the left, and then even Islamists, I would say, uh, ideology like groups like ISIS and others who really tap into social anxieties that is prevalent in, in globally. These are global trends and has nothing specifically to do with anti-Semitism, but we do see that the rise in populist movements, um, and, and Europe is kind of for me and my group, my team is the focal point of our work because we see this triple threat playing out at the same time and influencing one another. So in Europe, for example, you see the far right not only gaining traction and breaking taboos, historical taboos where they were kept out of the political arena, now coming in, being part of political coalitions, getting you know much higher votes, um, that then influencing the far left and the far left um, movement, like for example in the UK with the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn and the language of you know bringing socialism into it, but really going more of an anti-colonial, anti-Western um, ideology that is very extreme and intolerant in its own way. And then put in the mix is like the Islamist extremism of the ISIS and the Al-Qaeda and, and Muslim Brotherhood in many ways in Europe and, and Hamas and Hezbollah. And all of this, you know, really creates a perfect storm in a region like Europe with the history that it has. And when we look at then anti-Semitic incidents, like shooting through the roof, um, it's really about all of these affecting one another. So I'll give you a very specific example. In Europe, there's a lot of legislation now 
targeting whether it's access to kosher and halal meat or it's about um, circumcision for male babies. Mm. A lot of this kind of legislation is targeting Muslims in Europe, right? It's right-wing legislators and those who want to limit and minimize Muslim life in Europe. But of course, it affects Jews and affects Jewish life in Europe. Then you have kind of left-wing extremists who are either they're environmentalists or they believe in kind of uh, the freedom of the child to choose, a lot of different motivations coming in hand in hand um, supporting such legislation and so you have the far right and the far left coming together in very strange you know bedfellows pushing for legislation that is really taking away religious rights um, and and rights of religious minorities to practice their faith and and live um, according to their faith so but the strange Europe, the strange bedfellows then also exist when if the ADL supports uh, the rights of people to preside with uh, uh, um, circumcision then you're allying yourself with um, with Muslims as well right yes absolutely yeah. and look we we as I said we are an anti-hate organization we advocate on behalf of all minorities who are discriminated against. And we advocate on behalf of Muslims, like when the Muslim ban took place in the US under the Trump administration, we were the first, I mean, our CEO was the first one to say, if there's gonna be a, a Muslim registry, I'm gonna put my name on it. Uh, so ADL has a very long history on that. I'm really glad that you mentioned the the canary in the coal mine, that because mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel like, especially for Iranians, you know, there, I remember when we, um, when the Black Lives Matter uh, protests were at their their uh, zenith uh, last summer, um, last mm -hmm. year, and and we had a couple of people on the show come and say, you know, this is this is important for us as Iranians to be part of this. We're also people of color. We're also minorities, and and we got a bunch of pushback, you know, from from the mm -hmm. audience. People saying, you know, we're not black mm -hmm. people. We're not minority. Mm -hmm. And even the idea of being minorities is difficult for some <laughs> some Iranians. <laughs> and 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 you kind of think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the white supremacist is not going to separate separate us out of the pack. You know, I mean, as Absolutely. as Akhlari uh, has said on this program when she was talking about how hard she was working after the Patriot Act after 9-11 you know when in those jail cells when they were rounding up people um, you, you know they weren't they weren't um, they weren't sort of discerning which one's the Iraqi and which one's the Iranian and which one's the Jewish guy <laughs> you know they were just putting them all in the cell uh, you know if they're coming for them they're coming for us too right Absolutely. and so the, it's so important and I don't know how you work to impress that kind of idea on uh, so-called non-believers, if you will, say even in our community, in the Iranian community. I think uh, the, the kind of the issues of identity became really fascinating during um, kind of the post-George Floyd and the kind of the BLM movement. It was fascinating and I think it was very generationally interesting, even in my home. You know, I have three children, as you mentioned. Uh, my eldest, you know, are, are in their 20s. And we had really interesting dinner conversations about how we self-identify. And, you know, my daughters for the first time told me we consider ourselves, you know, people of color. And that term or, you know, to be a brown person, those were terminology that I hadn't used about myself. But right. they made me think about it. I said, you know what? Yes, we are. Of course we are. And as an Iranian-American, that's been the term that I, I self-reference and the way I identify myself as I'm an Iranian-American. But where do we fit in into this mix? And where are we in terms of our rights as a minority community? Where is our voice being represented? Who is speaking for us? 
it was fascinating to see that so many Iranians kind of saw themselves as white. Yeah. And whether that was a socioeconomic reference, because thankfully many are well-to-do and many do live in neighborhoods, uh, you know, with affluence. Was it a, you know, is it a political reference, you know, with, you know, affiliation with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? But we didn't really think about the race issue and ethnic issue and how do we fit in. So these were a lot of it was first time conversations. So we have to be patient with ourselves. And, and I think hopefully with, with um, kindness and respect, have these difficult, thorny conversations because we are, you know, it's been 40 years, since, you know, more than 40 years since our revolution, but we're still new at this. Mm-hmm. And to be immersed into kind of the complexity of anti-racist movements in America and the history of slavery in this country and how do we fit into all of that is, is complicated. And we need time to kind of delve into it. Hopefully we come to it with open eyes and we come to it from a place of learning and curiosity and not racism because we did see that. and. Unfortunately, in many of our communities, there was a very strong um, reaction to the BLM protests and um, vilifying many of the protesters who were nonviolent. I mean, of course, there was violence in some of the protests as well. But uh, some of it left kind of a bad taste in my mouth in terms of what I saw some of our community members depict those, those marches. And uh, not really having an understanding of what is it um, reflecting, what kind of history, what is the history of slavery in this country, of institutional racism in this country, why is there this fear of um, of the of law enforcement and police, and we have to come to all these um, realities with open eyes and kind of an open heart, and then figure out our own place in it and what is our hopefully additive and and what is our contribution. And it makes me so happy when I see members of our community uh, kind of getting into public life, running for office. That's a place where I feel our community has kind of been a little bit lacking. Yeah, and yeah. when I see young Iranian Americans kind of really vie for that kind of public service, it makes me really happy. And, and, it, and it forces some of these questions on us. You know, how do we self-identify? And of course, we all as individuals can do that. But as a community also, where do we show up? Where do we, where do we show up as allies? Where do we show up in coalitions um, to not only promote our own self-interest, but to make our communities as a whole better? And ADL does a lot of that. A lot of our work is about coalition building, about allyship, and about showing up for others. I really, um, I really appreciate the time that you've given us today. Let me end off where we started, which is uh, I was asking you about how you cope with um, you, you talked about getting up every morning and getting the briefings about incidents of uh, anti-Semitism and, and hate crimes around the world and, and, and how you even deal with that emotionally and, and psychologically. And um, I always say this, but I, I tend to think that people who do the kind of work that you do, people who are active, people who are activists, um, ultimately have to be optimists because if, if if you didn't believe that change can come, if you didn't believe that good things can come, you wouldn't be doing the work that you do. So are you optimistic about how we get out of uh, this in a, in, a, in a world that seems so full of toxicity and, and, and hate at present? You know, I do. I believe in the human spirit. I believe in our um, in our abilities to use innovation and creativity, and 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 also humanity to come together. I I really, truly, truly, truly believe in that. And as difficult as this moment is, and we can't close our eyes to the reality of what our 
society globally is going through. And again, this is not just a local issue. It's not an American issue. It's truly a global moment where we're at the precipice of feeling something, you know, really big and, and, and very uncomfortable for all of us and anxiety provoking. But I, I do believe looking at, and, you know, we're all students of history, hopefully, um, humanity has survived very difficult um, periods and, and some really dark periods. Um, this feels a bit of a dark moment for us, um, but I do believe in the resilience of, of human uh, spirit. And, and I do believe that, you know, in our home country now in the U.S., I believe in our institutions um, and their resilience. So I'm not ready to give up. Even after January 6th, for example, what happened in our, in our nation's capital and, and really the assault on our democracy, which was terrifying for all of us. Um, the resilience of our institutions, the resilience of kind of the American spirit and hopefully the global spirit um, will, will, you know, walk us through this and we will be scarred. I won't say we will be unscarred, but um, I, think, I think we have what it takes to look at the dangers facing us and hopefully work together to make our societies healthier, safer, and better. Dr. Sharon Nazarian, thank you for this today. Thank you. My pleasure. Really thank you for having it. me so much. Thank My you. pleasure. All the best. Bye-bye. Chodafes. Chodafes. Dr. Sharon Nazarian, uh, professor of political science at uh, UCLA and now the senior vice president of international affairs at the Anti-Defamation League. Dr. Sharon Nazarian joined us from Los Angeles, California today. All right, microphone's back on for... Uh, the fabulous Keon Groovy Shia and Captain Reza, Dr. Sharon Nazarian. Mm, I learned something new today. I always thought Jewish people were grouped into Ashkenazi or Saf Sephardic mm. Jewish, but I had no idea Persian Jewish people had their own. The like, Mizrahi. Mizrahi. I, did yeah. you know this? Well, I, you know what's funny is I did know about Mizrahi Jews, but I didn't think... I, I also didn't remember or mm -hmm. think that was a third category. Right. It was a, yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, that yeah. was amazing. One thing that it, it, it was quite incredible, and it's um, it adds to minorities' uh, it, um, hardship when they migrate, was when she was talking about certain how to behave learn how to behave in public and what to say what not to say about your culture and stuff the like code that. language the code language yeah it was so interesting because i didn't think they would have that back in iran a lot of my friends uh were grown up were jewish and i would go to their houses and stuff like that i, I noticed like they wanted to like offer me certain food like there would be a little chatter like in the kitchen and stuff but i never like it never clicked that it might be something like this like they're trying to you know be as conservative and and safe as humanly possible but here like i've noticed that like we have a lot of things in our culture like for example and like there is this sacrificial like ritual in iran where you buy a new house you buy a new thing mm, you and gotta you, kill an animal yeah, yeah. you kill an animal you put the every blood time i visited all over, iran yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah they do that horrifying. Like, <laughs> i don't think they do that as much anymore but like i remember like i was a little kid like i was five or six years old and i got traumatized actually because like they killed like a little sheep and oh. then put the blood on the tire of the I car know. and stuff i'm always telling people like uh oh no iran's not like that and then yeah, like, yeah, i know then but there'll be like a person like actually 
actually we killed the goat in the st- street you know like, no no don't say that yeah i know yeah. i know me this i'm the same i'm like here, no it's like a modern I, country uh, please uh, <laughs> reggie it's not like that <laughs> well uh, actually i killed the lamb myself <laughs> you know. no 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 wasn't it your pet <laughs> not anymore <laughs> it's lunch today a- you come visit we kill a, a sheep for you <laughs> no please God. don't kill a sheep in the car. Well, my family visited one time they of yeah. course every time they cut off a sheep's head like oh. in the front yard oh God, and yeah. one time who, who I, did that i don't family relatives like you're, you're extended like, family relatives, to, yeah. to, to for you in, Very honor, in honor of you relatives. <laughs> yeah and one time here get the sheep <laughs> get, <laughs> get the lamb the sheep maybe, no not that bad maybe, you know one time uh, like they cut off the head and like it had oh some God. life left oh in it God. the sheep like started running no. towards me no. Yeah, oh, so I, I'm traumatized. Well, you see, we let the cat out of the bag now, but generally speaking, I try to hide. Them. So what you what is your point? There was a code language around. Yeah, there that? was like, a code language like here when uh, like when I my, look, nowadays I don't talk about it as much, but and it's more <laughs> prevalent. Like people know about our culture, but when I recently moved, like a lot of this like these things, if it, it, it were to ever come up, like I would try to like you know be like oh, I don't know about that. We don't have that really anymore. Like it's back there, and I would just try to pivot. The conversation right. to change the subject, but right. I totally get that that code word thing. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, th- I mean, to be honest, the code language living here used to be Persian because <laughs> because <laughs> there weren't written so few Persians around That's that if true. my mom wanted to say something to me in the mall or something, you know, <laughs> she would just speak Farsi, funny. you know. And well, now you got to be careful. Now you feel uh, all these Persians around. Yeah, everybody, yeah. everybody would always got code. an ear on you, you know, wondering what you're gonna say. <laughs> I thought it was also interesting, like the, the, the question of identity that comes up so often with yeah. different guests of ours. You know, when she said, I mean, through all the hardship, like they literally fled Iran. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I say, oh, but your dad wanted to go back and, you know, they didn't, they didn't have full rights. And, and she's like, absolutely, you know, Iranian Jews think of themselves as Iranian, you know, yes. that they're, they're very sort of committed to uh, that. And it's. They cannot also, they, they couldn't stay in Israel because they're Iranian. Oh, so, you know, that, yeah. that was sad. Yeah. So they have to move from Israel. Yeah. 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 Remember that um, the guest that we had on very early on in our show? Who was uh, Orly Noy? Or Orly Noy, but her name wasn't is 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 Mosh- yeah. and she changed her name yes. when she oh. went to Israel because mm-hmm. to sort of they, they they said you have to change your name, yes. uh, and to, to kind of cloak the Persianness, you know, to yeah. a certain extent. <sighs> Interesting. Mm. Well, I I I was very grateful to have Dr. Sherry Nazarian on. That was. Uh, um, very insightful, and I think that the work that she does, uh, as we discussed in the beginning of the interview, is it's just uh, tremendously difficult work. Mm-hmm. Like to immerse yourself, to make the make the decision that I'm going to every day be dealing with uh, the difficult news of the world around oh, hatred and yeah. uh, uh, it's tough stuff. Thanks to Dr. Sharon Nazarian for coming on. A shout out to Farid Ameriun and York National Realty. York National Realty is based out of Aurora, Ontario, Canada, not too far north of Toronto, and the owner is a guy named Farid Ameriun. This is a boutique real estate brokerage company that provides top-tier service from first-time homebuyers to investors looking for new opportunities in the communities they serve. Farid has also made it his mission to give back to the Iranian community in the diaspora and has supported a number of Persian community events and projects. And this episode of Rook is brought to you with some support from him and his team. A big thank you to Farid Ameriun and York National Realty for all that they do. Go to yorknational.com 
for more information, yorknational.com. Aren't you buying houses these days, Reda? Go through uh, yorknational.com. I'm, I'm looking into buying a house, yeah. hopefully, soon. So, uh, but not in Aurora. <laughs> that's that's why well, you don't have to buy it in Aurora. He's he's a, a you know covers the whole they area. Cover full yeah. GTA Ontario, I think. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Every maybe. time I talk to Luke Reza, he's like he's up to some stuff. Like he's like, oh, I'm, I'm buying a new house. And I got a new car. <laughs> he's, and he, he's, like, he's, he's a savvy guy. Yeah, he's got <laughs> he's, stuff he's going on. <laughs> I'm a busy Good man. For yeah. him, man. Yeah. Respect, respect yeah. the game. Oh, respect, oh, respect. Wow. Yeah, see, Look at that takes a hustler this to is know. Well, episode 150 and uh, Keon and Reza <laughs> make up. You know what? Our week in London kind of, we, we bonded, bonded actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We realized yeah, that. I've seen <laughs> another side of Reza. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Very nice. times brings people together. Enemy yeah. of my enemy is my friend. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was special. Uh, coming up, Vanessa Rood Baraki uh, from Paris, uh, the great artist in just a few moments. But first, it's Monday. It's time for Letters of the Week. Oh, I totally forgot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We haven't done it. In we a haven't long had letters time. for two weeks, I and you know. forget you've got no, your role. Man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last week we launched the inaugural episode of the contemporary history of Iran with an episode titled "From Shahyad to Azadi." So we had author and professor Dr. Talin Gregor, who joined us to discuss how an iconic monument in Tehran that was a symbol of the monarchy, basically, in the the 70s, morphed into a symbol of the Islamic Republic almost overnight. So people wrote to that episode. We have a Cyrus K. um, wrote saying, Gate of which we can imagine ourselves. Maidan Shahyad, 1971. Great episode. Gate of which... We can Im- imagine ourselves. Imagine ourselves. I think that's uh, what um, Dr. Uh, Talon Gregor oh, made a reference that. Uh-huh, to that. Uh-huh. Yeah. The gate of which we can imagine ourselves. Yeah. Huh. Like imagine the future and like. Uh uh-huh, Yes. She yes. Said yes. Something about that. Yeah. Uh, Turaj Khosravi wrote saying, "Such a great direction and chapter you picked. I look forward to listening to the upcoming ones. Thank you and warm hugs from Ireland." I love that. Yeah. I, I love. I mean, it's a nice comment, but I I just like that there's a guy named Turaj in Ireland. Yes. <laughs> we should have made a trip to Ireland. Yeah, I'm telling so you, close. let's go make a beeline to Turaj oh, next time. If I know. Uh, okay, and then Par Par Adab wrote saying, "I enjoyed listening to this interview. The last question was wonderful. Was I think you question? you asked, uh, do you think this structure is going to last throughout time? Oh when, yeah. yeah. And she was like, if the Earth survives, if the Earth is still yeah. here, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. I should have prefaced the question. If we're still alive, <laughs> yeah. If if the world is still ex- still Humanity's exists, still yeah, here. yeah." Yeah, uh, and then Sammy Bayot wrote saying, thank you for covering this important topic in an innovative and unique way that is unique to Jean Romeshi and the and the team at Rook. Nice. Very nice. That's nice. Thank you, Sammy Bayot. Uh, Alfred Weber wrote to us saying, I'm sure the irony of the new name of that tower is not lost on anyone who pauses to consider its real meaning. How many more own goals will Iran kick this century? It's just sad. Great discussion, though. 
Interesting. And it's uh, from a non-Iranian, Alfred Weber. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't you it? You don't think that's an Iranian? Alfred Alf- Weber? <laughs> Alfred Weber. <laughs> My uncle's name is Alfred Weber. <laughs> it, probably, it's, it probably is. It's like the guy's name is Allah yeah. or something. <laughs> I am Alfred. I will Why? Yeah. You Alfred never know. There are a lot of like educated Canadians that take interest in that's Persian right. history. That's so. true. Yeah. Uh, or Americans, for that matter. Uh, and then we have Rahman Shamsi Ishkevari. Not Iranian. Ishkevari. Not Iranian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy, this Rahman, that sounds like a this is Swedish guy. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, one of the most impressive monuments in the world that is the symbol of our culture and attitude. You know, um, it wasn't the point of the episode to talk about the the, the exact nature of the architecture. And I know we've talked about uh, having Hossein Amanat on the show, mm. but I just, you know, I do marvel at, at what he did, what they did with that, that tower, like incorporating different parts of Iranian history, mm. pre-Islamic and yes. post-Islamic yes. history. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. And it's, and it's just, a it really is a glorious monument. I mean, we talked about how, I mean, one of my questions for Dr. Gregor was, well, why didn't they tear it down or abandon it somehow? Mm. Um, as when there's a huge regime change or revolution, oftentimes, you know, the new party wants to get rid of the, the, mm-hmm. the especially something that was a, a made for the monarchy, mm-hmm. or, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, but it's almost almost too good. It's too beautiful. Like yeah. it, the people wouldn't have stood for it, you know, yeah. to get rid of. It, it's almost like it represents wherever the Iranian people are at. You know, mm. now it's a, a place where people gather to protest the current regime, right? It's right. A, yeah. and hmm. not and not only the monument, but also it has a very beautiful gallery and a concert hall underneath really? the monument mm. and Rudaki Hall. No no, 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 Azadi. Like, oh, uh, Azadi yeah. Hall. And it's, yeah, it's fabulous. It's amazing, yeah. I remember you played there, right? No. Oh. No, I think so. You weren't allowed so- to play there. Something like that. <laughs> no, I, oh. I went there for several shows. But, oh, okay. Yeah, but, oh. No. You got high there. <laughs> Something. I knew there was some story. <laughs> how did they, my question is, how did they have the audacity to name it the Azadi Tower? Like, no, right. literally, like, the complete opposite but, you of know, on, what on they stand for. But, you know, on some levels, I wish they would have did that with, our, with a national flag and also, like, a national anthem where... Morph it, do whatever you want with it, but at least yeah. it exists. Don't You're tear right. it down and like uh, reinvent the wheel essentially. Because right now, like a lot of the, um, I don't know, division in our culture and is over the flag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, the how the answer to how do they have the audacity is that they they believe that it was freedom to <laughs> they're they're free of the monarchy. You know, that's. Uh, <sighs> All so right, moving on. You have to see things through the lens of 1979 sometimes. Uh, I wish than, I could. Yeah. I, anyway. Um, You're too young, Kia. Yeah. <laughs> Youngster. Yeah, it's, it sucks that the youngsters get to pay the price of uh, the revolution. That's you know, right. that, that pisses me off. You know, <laughs> we, we don't get to see the Iran that our parents talk about so highly of. Anyway, moving on. I'm very angry over this subject. <laughs> um, Zoya Katuli wrote saying, such a wonderful interview. So informative. It brought back old, sweet, and sour memories as well. Thank you so much, Jian Jun and Rook team. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Zoya. Very nice. Letter of the week time. Oh! All right. Yeah. This week, it goes out to Amone Golihatir. 
Oh, oh nice quite name. a name. Yeah. I know. It's almost as good as Kiondo. <laughs> almost. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's a beautiful name. Uh, Hope, she wrote saying, thank you. This program is wonderful. I like it. This is going to be the beginning of an exciting journey. Oh. I agree with that. Is it the beginning, John? It is the beginning. It's of an exciting journey. <laughs> of an exciting journey? <laughs> of course. It's, it's, I mean, it's the what contemporary the, history uh, of Iran part one. So, oh, I mean, I if we make it to part two, it'll be uh, <laughs> a journey. When, when does the excitement <laughs> begin? <laughs> Call me when it starts. What? <laughs> I'm joking. Wow. I'm joking. All you right. have to have the facts. Wasn't there a song? Amene, Amene. Amene, Chishmeto. That's how I know that name. Amene, Amene. Okay, it doesn't go like you. Amene. No, I just remember it because you know, like the only. Jealous. like a goat herder. The only, <laughs> the only reason I know it actually is because when I was a little kid, my cousin would sing it. And he, and he like a kid and he was a kid yeah. he'd be like Amine Amine oh that's God. that's all I know about the song I don't think I've ever actually heard it. Oh my God. <laughs> Didn't Andy and Kuro sing yeah, that song? Right, yeah, right. It's Agassi. Actually. Oh, Agassi originally. Yeah. Yeah. And it has a parody thing uh, that came after that, which said. What is that? Who's who did that version? I, I like it. I'm gonna look for that. <laughs> Um, All right. That's uh, thank you to Amine for the letter of the week. Uh, and uh, thank you, uh, Fabius Keon. guest today is an Iranian French painter best known for her works as examples of expression and tangible objectivity that are inspired from the world around her. Vanessa Rudbaraki is arguably one of the most renowned Iranian artists of the current era with multiple international prizes and trophies earned from different countries around the world. She has held more than 100 exhibitions of her artworks in international galleries and salons in Europe, Asia, and North America. But her art remains forever inspired by her roots in northern Iran, where, as she describes it, the forests, mountains, and seaside merge in wonderful and untamed harmony. Vanessa Rubaraki was born in Rasht and has lived in Paris since 1990. Having completed her university studies in mathematics, she says she's always used the philosophy and tools of mathematics to create her paintings. She's also been a consistent activist for human rights and the rights of women in Iran. An image of her work, The Cry for Iran, was carried during the Paris demonstrations in support of the Green Movement in Iran in 2009. And right now, Vanessa Rudbaraki joins me from Paris, France. Hello. Hello, Jean. Hello, everybody. I am so happy to be with you. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you. And I've been told that you've got an accomplice with you. You've got your daughter, Emily, next to you as well. Yes, yes. she's with me because my English is not good enough. <laughs> Uh, I need her to, yeah. Your English is fine, but uh, but uh, it sounds like Emily's your safety, your your safety valve, your security guard. Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. Okay, well, uh, bonjour, Emily, and thank you for being here as well. Vanessa, <laughs> your 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 paintings are 
uh, I've been excited to talk to you. I mean, your paintings are so vivid, so rich in color, and so deep in their exploration of the natural world. You said you are inspired by the relationship between humans and nature. So let's start there. What captures your imagination about that relationship between humans and nature? Yes, so I try to, I don't know, it's not translation, but it's my inspiration from, from the nature and the life, the life in, uh, around of me. I can feel that uh, in the nature, I can feel that uh, by the human, mm -hmm. by by body, but nude, but uh, by by nature, by land landscape. But you don't, uh, uh, for example, I mean, when you say you're inspired by the world around you, you don't paint buildings. No, we don't because, see that kind of. We see it's yes. more. So it, it has to be a living thing. Is that what it inspires you? Because because the building is not live. They don't have life. Ah. It's not alive. Uh, yeah, I, I can't. Is I can't feel the life in the building. It's not my specialty. It's, it's it don't touch me. You right, know, right. I just can uh, draw or, or do painting. Uh, the, the all things that have li have the life, like nature, like landscape, like uh, the plant, the human, the body, the flowers, the. Uh, Water, the uh. song, <laughs> mountain, uh, like this. By the way, any difficulty you have with your English is compensated by the fact that you have that charming French accent. Uh, <laughs> so it's <laughs> everyone wants that Sorry. accent. Trust me, everybody wants your accent. It's beautiful. Uh, um, the the inspiration of nature, though it it seems quite visceral for you. It's quite. Um, um, direct for you. I, I, I don't know if this is still true, but I saw one uh, video footage of you where you have a studio that's located near a forest or in, in nature. And it's this romantic idea that we have that an artist travels through nature to find peace and inspiration. And I, I always wonder if that's real or if that is just a romantic idea. Are you really actually inspired by these walks you take, say, in the forest? Does that really translate into painting for you? Uh, yes, yes. I, I need to to be in touch with nature and uh, with uh, yeah with the nature. I need to be there. But of course, I can't uh, take with me a big, very a, a huge a converse and go in the forest for to do painting. I just go in the forest, in the nature, in everywhere that I, I feel some things good that I, I can work with, I can do some things. I go there, I stay many times there, then I do a small video with me. Always, I have I have with my uh, my telephone, with my mobile, with some things that I can do a small video. Then uh, in my studio, I look the after the video that I did, and just I looked at, I stop many time. Then I start uh, uh, my painting in my studio. In that time, I, of course, I, I'm not in the landscape, I'm not in the nature, but I, I trans, translate some things that I feel, uh, that I live in, 
uh, outside. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that you're an expressionist painter. So even though you're taking the video or the photos, you're not directly painting exactly what's in the, the picture. You're, you're expressing uh, something that you've felt, exactly. right? Exactly. Because I can't, I can't draw, I can't paint exactly the same things. If I draw or I paint some things in in some artwork, it's just one special uh, view, uh, point of view, 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 view, and it's not all of a point of view, because we have infinity uh, point of view, and I just have one. Then I have to translate this sensation, mm. this emotion with me by my body, with my mind, with my all of my uh, element. And then I translate uh, on, on the uh, canvas. Then when the people uh, look at my artwork, they have also uh, them's own uh, point of view, the, them's own uh, inspiration, and there's the interpretation yeah that interpretation. interpretation yes right right do you feel like if it's expressionist if it's a bit more abstract people can bring their own interpretations rather than if you paint something very specific that there's only one point of view of oh yeah yes i i think abstract is the, the things that more exact abstract painting abstract artwork is the more exact side of what I see mathematical uh, because I you, you know I study mathematical and in the mathematics we have many different dimensions but us only we can feel and we can see maybe three or four uh, dimension but mathematically we have more than that <laughs> so we have many dimension in our around in our world that we, we can't the human can't feel that, can't see them, can't hear, but they ex exist because mathematic mathematically we know that exists. So abstract for me is the more realist, is the ah, more realistic. I get more it, I get it. That's for, you turned it around in the sense that we think of abstract as less realistic, but I understand. You know, I was going to ask you about the combination of mathematics and painting a little later, but I, you, now that you brought it up, I, I think of mathematics as the opposite of a, of abstract art in the sense that it, it's an exact science, isn't it? Isn't it math like you always have to, I mean, it's, it, it, it defines itself by math equations. There's only one right answer, Masalan, you know, whereas. Yeah, but, but, but it depends on the niveau of mathematics. If we stay in niveau in high school, school, high school, yes. But uh, I speak about the mathematics in high, uh, mm -hmm. high level uh -huh. of mathematics in university and after. I have my, my son, my son, my older, older. He's mathematician. He's a professor, uh, right? At, uh, yeah, yeah, he's a professor of mathematics in university. And uh, one day he was in my studio and he tell me, he look after a abstract uh, painting and he tell me, you know, if uh, you know the mathematics to high level 
and uh, we have a very important, very uh, huge imagination, and we want to draw the world. It became a abstract painting mm. and never a figurative painting. Right. That's so fascinating. It's so interesting. Yes. You know, the other thing about nature is, I mean, for those of us who grew up outside of Iran, I grew up in England and then in Canada, we don't always think of Iran in terms of its natural beauty. I mean, I know that Iran is about that, but I think of Tehran and I think of crowded streets or something. And I come from Canada where, you know, the name of the country conjures up images of mountains or rivers or forests or nature. Tell me about the north of Iran. And oh. how that inspired you in terms of nature? Yes, yeah, north of Iran, where I am from, is Gilan. It's so uh, green. You have a Caspian Sea in one side, and another side you have mountain, uh, Albors, uh, and you have the very beautiful forest is really very very green and so beautiful you have also the rizière rizière the rice uh, rice fields uh, yeah the last year that i was in iran i remember i was so young and i remember that we visited the mountain mountain very beautiful forest and the very very nice area were you drawing at all i mean were you did you when did you yeah. when did you know that you had this ability that you had this yeah. talent to be able to paint uh, i just started to draw by myself because uh, i am autodidact in the class in the class i draw the professor the teacher mm -hmm. Uh, I, I love that and the children uh, always come uh, in around of me for to see what I draw today. So the other kids knew that you were good at drawing even when you were young? Yes. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that you've talked about how, I mean, by the time you're finishing your mathematics degree and you're starting to paint, um, it's the 80s, you're in your... 20s early 20s uh, and I know that you've talked about being very affected by the Iran-Iraq war that was happening at the time how did the the war affect you oh my god yes I know the war very very good because I live um, eight years uh, of my life in this war uh, from 14 years to 22 and it was just after that I come in France. So, uh, and uh, I, I remember that, uh, uh, first of all, I, I lost six of my uh, my friends oh, in wow. the war. Yeah, yes, yes. Because I was, uh, for one year, I was in Luristan University. Mm. It was just uh, uh, in the limit of uh, Iraqian, Iraq. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, when we study in, in university, we hear all time uh, the, uh, bombs? The, the bombardment, yeah. the bombs, the rocket, and all that. And one morning, uh, I stand up at six in the morning with a huge, a very huge sound and uh, they bombard our university 
and uh, many many students was died then uh, they asked uh, the, the boys because we was only three girls in uh, our uh, promotion uh, and 27 uh, boys and they asked them they if they want to help our country because the war it was very uh, difficult in the in that moment yes uh, and uh, of course all the boys uh, said yes but they were so young and they never study how to take a arm yes. and wow. when they go uh, is the the majority was uh, died. Oh, died yeah and you know what one, one, one more things Gian, you know I I I paint uh, and I draw always the puppies. Yes, I don't know puppies. Yes, yes. Yeah, puppies. Yeah, puppies. And the puppies for me is the is in the memory that all of my friends and the students and all the people that I know and they 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 died very young in this war. Yeah, I, I saw some of your paintings of poppies about uh, in, in remembrance of the war, and I, it was interesting to me because poppies are what we use here in Canada for Remembrance Day um, because of actually Flanders Fields, which is not far from where you are right now. Uh, you know, remembering World War Two, people wear the the, the, the poppies here in, uh, in Canada. So uh, it was interesting to me that you also use the poppies as a remembrance of the Iran-Iraq War. Yeah. You must have been very afraid. Yani me tarsidi ke masan unjo ke gofti toy lorstan budi ke you were close to the front lines of the war. Um like psychologically chejuri masan did that affect you? Psychologically I I wasn't sure to be in life. I don't know that how many uh, how many times I can be in, in life because Mark uh -huh. uh -huh. you were losing friends you were yeah yeah that uh -huh. was so close to me and, and 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 that time I understand if I am in life because it's a miracle hmm. how did you how did you choose I mean you've how did the the decision to finally leave Iran happen, and, and and how did you choose France, or did France somehow choose you? Something started in in me. Yes, uh, and uh, I decided to 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 go away, to just go away. Yes. When I left Iran, for me in my mind, it was for survival. Sur survival. 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 Yeah. Yes, only survival. Yeah, so you yeah. didn't you yeah. didn't think you were leaving to go to France to be an artist. Yeah. You were just no. leaving to save yourself, and then it turned out that you were an artist. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. Sure. Uh, and then when I arrived in in France for the first time in my life, I feel the peace because when I was child, it was a revolution. Then it was the war in Iran, about eight years, and uh, I always heard the ambulance, the bombardment, the the security with mitrai with the, the armed the soldiers. The I also I I, I was in a huge tremblement de terre. 
earthquake. Earthquake in Iran. Yes, the the root bar, right? Root bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I was in Rash, it was not not far from root bar. It was just after the the war. It was two months after the war. Yes, it's a lot so. of a lot of misery. It's true. I mean, yes. we talk about this a lot in this program, and people say, "Well, why do you keep talking about the revolution or the, the war?" It's because it affected so many people's lives, like uh, those of us who've left Iran for uh, in in and, and who live in different countries, like yourself. That said, you've been in France for more of your life than you were in Iran. You've been in France for over thirty years. You are a a French artist, but you clearly identify with Iran. Some of your your videos that you post, Vanessa, on, on Instagram, where you're communicating, you, you do it in a mix of, a very fluent mix of English and then French and Farsi, Khatimishan, you know. Uh, it, it's really fun to watch. I mean, in terms of your identity, where where's your heart? Do you think of yourself as French now or, or Iranian, or how do you distinguish? Yeah, it's a good uh, question. Originally, yeah, I, I feel Iranian, but uh, I was adopted by a, a new family, a French family. If I wasn't in France, if I don't travel in France, I never became who I am today. Right. And in France, I saw my country better. When you are far, it's like a painting. If you are too close to painting, you can't see all things, but if you are, you take a distance from, uh, sure. from painting, yeah. you look that better. In France, it was the same things for me. I now I know my country. I study about Iran, uh, Iran civilization, uh, Iran culture, Iran history. Yes. Uh, yeah, and everything about Iran. Uh, you know, you're. <laughs> Let me ask you a bit about more about your painting, and then I'm going to ask a bit about Iran before I let you go. Your, your painting, uh, it really is expression for you. I mean, you, you speak through your paintings. You've said this. And I'm curious how it asserts itself, Vanessa. Like, if you're, say you're not traveling, say you're at home, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tomorrow, you're at home, and you don't necessarily, will you only go to your studio if you're feeling it or will you force yourself to go and sit in front of the canvas to kind of see if something yes. comes out yes no i can also uh, draw or do everything in my home if i feel the, I, i'm not uh, yeah i have everywhere i have the uh, the tool and i can but what if everywhere. you don't feel i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I'm yeah. asking if you ever feel an obligation because it's your job you know that i don't have i don't want to have obligation uh -huh. because it's my job now yes uh -huh. i for this reason i don't take i don't accept the order it's so difficult to accept ah yeah. you don't because do commissions somebody says no, you don't yes Sometimes it's, it's the exception only for the portrait because I have somebody that asks me portrait regu regularly, but uh, not uh, uh, not for everybody. Some someone like the Queen of Iran from the Pahlavi era. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I want to ask you. You know, you know everything. <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> I want to ask you about, I mean, you've posted a few photographs with uh, Farah Pahlavi Diba, the, the Queen of Iran from the Pahlavi era, and she's been very supportive of you. Yes. How, yes. Did, she, how did she first hear about you? I knew her in 
New York in um, 2006 when I was invited in Iranica uh, by Professor Yarshater. Yes. I, uh, I gave one of my paintings to Iranica uh, for, for support Iranica. Then uh, she was there. I stayed uh, near to my painting. I don't uh, move. <laughs> she was far to me. Uh-huh. And the, from there, she asked uh, to Professor Yashater, who is her? And he said, she's a painter. And uh, she said, I want to see she's painting. So, uh, so she come to close, close to me. Uh, of course, I present me. She was so uh, cute, so so sweet, uh, sweet, yeah, so so cute. And then she asked me, "Okay, we take a photo together." But I don't take my my camera with me. I I, <laughs> I take nothing. I said here, I don't have a camera. And she said, well, somebody can take a photo from us. Uh, of course, everybody want to take the photo from us. And she checked all the photo for to see <laughs> if the photo are okay. I was impressed about that. Yes. Then she asked my card. And uh, then when she come in Paris, of course, I invited her to my exhibition. Then she she started to buy me my painting, and she support me. And uh, I have I have a, a huge chance to be uh, in contact with with her. Vanessa, tell me about your decision to speak out the way you do against the Islamic Republic. You you posted a video in April saying no to the Islamic Republic. I mean, some artists shy away from being political do you feel it's your responsibility to speak out yes i feel because this is how i learn in france you know in france and in many another uh, country i think in canada is like this uh, the artists uh, have to take the decision about the, the the country about all of the decision i can't understand many artists that uh, think uh, the politics is different with the art and it's better to just do uh, the uh, artwork mm-hmm. and do nothing with the politics but the politics is our life is our future is the future of my children is the my country is my country also i have to decide for my country i have to talk with my people i have to do some things if uh, i see that is injustice and uh, uh, for me it's normal it's natural obviously it means that you can't visit iran now i assume it's no problem if I can't visit Iran. For me, Iran is in my mind, in my spirit. In, mm. in, is in spirit. It's not just because it's geographic, it's a limit geographic, uh, if I can go in this limit geographic or not. Iran is more huge than a l- geographic limit uh, on the uh. world card. I like that, you know, you're, you're not the first person to say that, that Iran, to a certain extent, um, for many of us, maybe is, is not, 
it, it, it's a mindset or it's a place that doesn't have geog- geographical boundaries around it, especially given those who don't want to identify Iran as the Islamic Republic or what it currently um, is in terms of as a nation state. It's a very interesting thought. Um, do, do your, uh, I guess I should ask Emily, I mean, do your, what relationship do your kids have with Iran? Um, I wish I could go there one day because it seems to be beautiful and I never went there. Um, can but, you speak, uh, can you speak Farsi, Emily? Uh, yeah, can. Yeah, can. And, and Emily, are you, uh, now I know that, um, your son, Vanessa is a assistant professor at University of Strasbourg. I, I would have asked this of him, but I can ask of you. Do you, do you, are you aware of how cool your mom is or is she just a, <laughs> or is she just a yeah. mom to you? No, no, she's, she's the coolest. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> uh, Emily, are you also an artist? Yeah, uh, yes, I am. I mostly do digital art, though. Um, my job is uh, making jewelry, so I can ah, okay. So you're creative as well. Um, a, a final question to you, Vanessa. When you, you know you're you have a a popular social media presence, uh, do you do you hear from people in Iran? Are Iranians aware of of you uh, as well as people around the world in the art world and in France? Yes, of course, many, many. I am in contact with, with Iranian artists. I support them and uh, I try to organize uh, many events for the artists, Iranian artists in France. Uh, and uh, yes, I, I am in contact with them. I very much have enjoyed talking to you. I, I, I your, your art is just is very inspiring, and I, and I hope to get to. I hope you'll do an exhibition here in Toronto or different places in the world where we can see it, uh, or I'll just have to come to Paris and see it. But I, uh, it is very inspirational talking to you and the work that you do. I thank you so much for taking the time today. I think your English is just fine. Although I really appreciate Emily being with us as well and uh, I hope we get to see you soon thank you very much Jan I hope also to see you soon thank merci. you merci. bye Emily merci thank you bye bye okay. bye Vanessa Rubaraki an Iranian French painter best known for her works as examples of expression and tangible objectivity that are inspired from the world around her She's won myriad international awards, and you heard her there with her daughter, Emily. That's Vanessa Rubaraki joining us from Paris, France today. And uh, Shai Jun? Yeah, I'm fascinated by the fact, actually, that, uh, you know, abstract and mathematics oh. is it's amazing. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. Really it blew my mind. Yeah. I, and, and, and also, uh, shame on me for having such a limited uh notion of what mathematics should be a <laughs> prescribed notion she's like no actually at a more higher level mathematics is not as uh, you know obvious as you think there gomeshi um thank you thank you shia thanks to captain reza and uh, the fabulous keon this is full time for rook for today for all things rook for our episodes our funnies our rook moments videos go to rookmedia.com rookmedia.com where you can find it all including a way to support us 
through our patron program. Uh, just press the support us button on the main page there. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Producer Susan Ponce of the Artist. Fabulous Keon. Super Patty Saw. Savvy Roham, Alay Mertod, Sponsorship Sean, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on all or any of our platforms if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram or Facebook or other places at Gian Gomeshi. And in the meantime, as ever, of course, Mizu Mbashi. Mizu Mbashi.